the fictitious yet penetrating story is told of someone who overheard a conversation between Satan and his evil spirits. Satan asked his hosts, Who will go to earth and persuade men for me to accomplish the ruin of their souls? What message will you use? How will you say what you want to say so that men and women, boys and girls, will turn away from the things of God? One demon stepped forward to volunteer and he said, I will tell people there is no heaven. Satan frowned and replied, that won't work. For too many centuries, mankind has been told that there is a heaven, and our enemy God has given the Christian a book that talks about heaven and tells that there will no longer be death, tears, sorrow, pain, affliction, or tragedy. That won't work. A second spirit glided forward and said, I will go, and I will tell them there is no hell. Again, Satan responded, That will not do. The conscience of man, if nothing else, convinces man that someday there must be a day of reckoning in which men and women will come to terms with their lives. In fact, the book I mentioned has more to say about hell than it does heaven. Your message will not work. Satan paused and said, I need someone who will make an appeal to all classes, all ages, all cultures, in all countries around the planet. A third spirit glided forward and volunteered to go. He said, I will not tell people there is no hell. I will not tell people there is no heaven. I will tell them there is no hurry. Although we don't know that such an interchange ever took place between Satan and his hosts, the point of that story could not be more true. Satan loves people to believe that there is no hurry when it comes to responding to the gospel. There's no hurry when it comes to responding to the call on our lives demanded by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Satan loves for people to believe, you've got time. Tomorrow, later on, you can come to terms with your standing before God. There is no hurry. Satan loves to use procrastination to keep men's and women's souls captive. Gloria Pitzer wrote, Procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. We chuckle at that, but when it comes to spiritual decisions, that is a great tragedy. For example, some of you here this morning are no different than you were two years ago, though you have heard the Word of God off and on for the past couple years. Some of you are no closer to the kingdom of God than you were a year ago, even though you have heard and you know what God's word says about sin and about Christ. You know the gospel. You know the story of the resurrection which we celebrate this day. You know you need to surrender your life to Christ. 
but you think there's no hurry. If you feel that way, then I urge you to learn a lesson from a man named Felix. His story, or a part of his story, is recorded for us in Acts chapter 24. And I invite you to turn there with me this morning. It is the fifth book of the New Testament after the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts chapter 24. We are going to primarily be in the book of Acts this morning, though one time we'll turn back one book to the gospel of John. But Acts chapter 24 records a very brief an insightful account. Please follow along as I begin reading in verse 24 of chapter 24. We read, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus, succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. You might think that this seems like a strange or unusual text for an Easter Sunday, but as we work our way through, you will see how pertinent, how applicable this passage is for us on Easter Sunday. Before we jump right in, allow me to acquaint you with the context of these verses. Obviously, we are jumping into the middle of a story here. As we come to this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is incarcerated. He is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He has been falsely accused by some of his Jewish kinsmen, and he was forced to stand trial. He stood trial before a man named Felix, who was a Roman magistrate. Even though nothing could be proven against Paul, and he was obviously innocent of all charges, Felix decided to keep Paul incarcerated so as not to rile up the Jewish people who were out to get Paul. So Paul sat wondering what was going to happen to him. Then one day, all of a sudden, Paul was summoned to appear before Felix again because Felix was intrigued by some of the things Paul had said in his previous trial, and Felix was intrigued by what Paul stood for and what Paul believed. You see, Paul had already gotten the attention of Felix by some of the comments in his defense testimony at the trial. Back in verse 15, Paul referred to the resurrection of the just and the unjust. In other words, everyone is going to be resurrected someday and be held accountable before God. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that is the guarantee that everyone is going to be raised from the dead someday. That would not have set very well with Felix, because he wasn't right before God, and the evidence is that he knew he wasn't right with God. The other statement that would have caught the attention of Felix is verse 16, where Paul said, I myself always strive to have a conscience 
without offense toward God and men. In other words, Paul had a clear conscience. But Felix didn't have a clear conscience. Because his wife, Drusilla, was his third wife, and he had seduced her away from her first husband by hiring a sorcerer to persuade her to leave her husband and join him. So Paul had already gotten the attention of Felix during the trial, and now Felix wants to know more. He wants to know really where he stands. So with that background, let's look at this story beginning in verse 24. We read, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now I've told you a little bit about Felix. Now here in verse 24 we're introduced to Drusilla. Drusilla, the wife of Felix, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. He is mentioned back in Acts chapter 12. So let's back up to get a little family background on her. Back up a few chapters to Acts chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to to harass some from the church. The Herod mentioned here in verse 1 was the father of Drusilla, the lady in focus in our story in chapter 24. The Herod mentioned here in verse 1 also was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who ordered the babies in Bethlehem to be murdered. Uh, and, and we hear that story almost every year at Christmas time, so most of you are probably familiar with it. He was the grandfather, Herod the Great was the grandfather of this man here in verse 1. Another relative you might know from Scripture was Herod Antipas. The Herod here in verse 1 was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. So the Herod family was a scheming and murderous family that was hated by the Jewish population. That's important background to this 12th chapter of Acts because it tells us why Herod did what he did in this chapter. He probably didn't have any particular hatred for Christians, but he decided to persecute, or verse 1 says, harass the church so he could try to get on the good side of the Jewish people who were really against the first century Christians. In other words, Herod saw this as a way of earning some brownie points with the Jewish population over which he ruled. Verse 2 says, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he also proceeded further to seize Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread that he did this. So verse 2 says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and then he went on to arrest Peter. It's interesting that he killed James with the sword. This mode of death was looked upon by the Jews as the most disgraceful way to die. The Talmud says this and tells us that this punishment was used in the case of someone who misled the people into worshiping false gods. Of course, that's the way the Jewish people of the first century viewed Christianity. That was their perspective. They viewed Christianity 
as the worship of a false god, namely Jesus. So this form of death, mentioned in verse 2, to kill with a sword, was a statement to that effect. And I'm sure it gained Herod more favor with the Jewish people. It's remarkable to think that James was murdered to promote an egomaniac's political career. Historical tradition tells us that as James was being led away to be beheaded by the sword, he displayed so much courage that the officer guarding him fell down at his feet, begging him for forgiveness of the rough treatment he had inflicted on James. James lifted him up, hugged him, and said, Peace, my son, peace be to you, and the pardon of your faults. We are told the officer publicly confessed his own surrender to Christ and was beheaded alongside James. James took someone with him when he went to heaven. Verse 3 tells us that after beheading James, Herod did something else. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Herod was going to wait until after this particular Jewish holiday so he could get their full attention to seek to win their favor. We learn from history that in order to secure the favor of the Jewish people, Herod tried to keep all of their laws. And one of their laws was that during this particular holiday period, there could be no executions. So Herod complied. He simply arrested Peter, was going to behead him after the holiday. He complied with the law to make the most of his warped popularity contest. Verse 4 says, So when he had arrested him, He put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. By the way, this is the fourth time now that Peter was put in prison in the book of Acts. Fourth time. He probably had a room with his name on it by now. But this go-around, he was guarded by four soldiers at a time. Two soldiers would be chained to him at all times, and two would guard the door. Herod took these extra precautions because earlier, when Peter and the apostles had been arrested, they had been released by an angel. So Herod didn't want to take any chances this time. He wanted to make sure Peter stayed put. But you can't beat God. In essence, Herod was challenging God. This reminds me of the challenge King Nebuchadnezzar made to God when he told Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that he was going to cast them into the fiery furnace. And he said this, Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Listen, when you challenge God, you've met your match. Because you can't beat God. Verse 5 tells us, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This is something Herod hadn't taken into account. The church prayed. They didn't protest. They didn't politic. They prayed. And in response, verse 6 tells us, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, And a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. 
God accepted Herod's challenge and sent an angel to deliver Peter. Verse 8 continues the story. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Peter finally woke up enough and became alert enough to realize what had happened. And the verse tells us Peter knew what was behind Herod's plot to behead him. He knew it was really the Jewish people who were out to get him because they felt like he was a traitor to their people for believing in Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jewish people were just using Herod as a pawn. But the plot of the Jews was defeated and so was Herod. He's mentioned again at the end of this chapter. Skip down to verse 20. It says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. The Herod mentioned here in verse 20 is the same Herod mentioned back in verse 1. The father of Drusilla, who's, the, who's in focus in the story we're mainly going to consider this morning, As a side note, other historical records confirm exactly what Dr. Luke says here, which shouldn't surprise us because the Word of God is always accurate. There was some kind of conflict between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. As a result, Herod was very angry. That put the people in a very tenuous situation because their country was dependent on Herod for food and supplies. So the people got an inside track probably by bribing Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and by setting up some way to get back on the good side of the king. And since they knew Herod well, his ego and his pride, they knew they could get on his good side by flattering him, to butter him up. So verse 21 tells us that on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. The Jewish historian Josephus says this took place during a festival honoring Claudius Caesar and that the king wore a beautiful garment, silver garment, in honor of the occasion. This silver garment would have glistened in the sun and called great attention to Herod, which is exactly what he wanted. Verse 22 says, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! They played upon Herod's ego and told him he was a god, and he loved every minute of it. He accepted their flattery. But Herod evidently didn't know or care about a verse in Isaiah where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. I mean, It's one thing to try to resist God and defeat God like Herod had tried to do back in the early part of this chapter. It's another thing to try to steal God's glory. That's even more serious. 
So verse 23 tells us, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Remember, the man writing this book, the book of Acts, Luke, was a doctor, a medical physician. And he knew this wasn't just a normal physical illness. This was the judgment of God. Josephus tells us that Herod was struck down while making this speech and died after five days of suffering. Those five days were God's mercy to give him time to repent of his idolatry and his pride, but we have no evidence in history that he did. He evidently died clenching his fist at God. This man was the father of of Drusilla mentioned in chapter 24. So Drusilla would have had some awareness of Christianity, even though she was only six years old when her father died. And in fact, she may have been behind the meeting to hear what Paul had to say. She might have prompted her husband to call Paul back in to hear what he had to say. Now let's go back to chapter 24 with this as background. We are told in verse 24, after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned, that is Paul, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Basically, what Paul was telling Felix was this. Felix, you are not righteous before God as evidenced by your lack of self-control. And if you die in that condition, you will face the judgment of God. I'm also sure, because of what Paul said on many other occasions, that he told Felix about Christ's resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus is the proof That judgment is coming. Let me show you this back just a few pages in chapter 17. Go back to another occasion when Paul was speaking. And notice what he said in chapter 17, verse 30. He says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all, watch this, by raising him from the dead. In other words, God is going to judge everyone someday, and the proof of that is the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To say it another way, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is proof he's going to raise every person from the dead to be judged. That's what Paul told Felix. Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Why did Paul specifically reason about those things? I'll tell you why. Because he knew that those are the very issues the Holy Spirit convicts people of to bring them to faith in Christ. Jesus taught this in John chapter 16. Go back one book in the New Testament to just prior to the book of Acts is the Gospel of John. And look at chapter 16. Notice what Jesus said 
beginning in verse 7. On the night before his death, he said to his disciples, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, convicts men and women of their sin, their need for righteousness, and the certainty of judgment if there is no repentance. So that's why Paul reasoned about these very issues. And beloved, these are the very issues we need to major on today in our presentation of the gospel. Men and women are sinners. We are all sinners. That's the starting point. We need righteousness. And the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who repent of their sin and repent of their own attempts to be right with God through their own works and receive the Lord Jesus are righteous in the sight of God. Those who refuse will face the judgment to come. That's what Paul told Felix. And the text tells us Felix was afraid. Felix was under conviction, but he pushed it away. He told Paul to go away. He told Paul he would consider these things later when the time was convenient. Now back to chapter 24 of the book of Acts. Notice what Felix says here in Acts 24, verse 25. Now, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Felix told Paul he would consider these things later, when the time was convenient. But you know what? The time never was convenient. Verse 26 tells us, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. In other words, he's looking for a bribe from Paul. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Even though Felix was afraid and trembled, he still turned right back to his old sinful ways. And we don't ever read that he trembled again, even though he conversed with Paul many, many times. Instead, Money became more important to him than his soul. He probably thought Paul had access to a lot of money because back in verse 17 of this chapter, Paul had mentioned during the trial that he came to bring alms and offerings to the people in Jerusalem. That stuck with Felix. He heard that. He caught that. So he wanted in on whatever money Paul had. What a sick mind this reveals. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Jesus made that statement because he knows how many people there are in this world who are more fixated on money than they are concerned for their souls. Felix was another case in point. From the best we can tell, he evidently thought no more about the judgment to come. He lost sight of 
eternity and was focused on the here and now. How can I get some money out of Paul? All he wanted to do was to get out of Paul some money. That is really scary. When you get to the point where you no longer tremble about the judgment to come because you are so preoccupied with earthly things, that's an extremely dangerous condition. Felix was afraid at one point, but he wasn't afraid enough. There are people like this today. In fact, in all likelihood, there are people like this here this morning. They know that judgment is coming someday. And they know they will be judged for their sin. And when they stop to face that fact, whenever they let that thought enter their minds, they tremble. Whenever they consider it or contemplate it, they tremble. But they aren't afraid enough to let go of their sin to turn to Christ. They love their sin too much to let go of it. This reminds me of John 3.19, which says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. That was Felix. He loved the darkness rather than the light, even though the light had made him tremble. So what did he do? Verse 27, But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Two years. Can you imagine this? Think where you were in life two years ago today, or two years ago this season. Now just think what it would be like if for the last two years you had been unjustly incarcerated. Your freedom taken away from you for the last two years. Paul sat there in limbo for two years while some crooked Roman magistrate used him like a pawn to protect and advance his political career. When I first read this, I thought about another man of God who had been forgotten about for two years of incarceration. His name was Joseph. His story is in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Joseph helped out a man who was about to be released from prison, and Joseph was there unjustly. He helped this man who was about to be released from prison, and Joseph requested that when the man was released and restored to his service in Pharaoh's court, he remember Joseph. But the man completely forgot about Joseph, so Joseph sat there for another two years. That's similar to what happened to Paul here. The twisted accusations of his accusers could not be proven, and yet the man who had the authority to release him decided to let him sit there for two whole years. Can you imagine how frustrating this would be? It would take an incredibly strong, vertical focus on life not to get bitter. It would take a strong understanding of and belief in the sovereignty of God not to get bitter. You would have to know and believe and be convinced in your heart of hearts that God is in control, that He has a purpose behind all of this. And I'm sure Paul felt that way. Although his preference was to be free, 
We know that because over in chapter 26, verse 29, he states that. Like any of us, he would have preferred to be free. So even though Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God, he probably still had times of discouragement. After all, he was human. And there he sat for two years. In response to this passage, I have a couple of applications that I would like to pass along to us this morning. And I've left ample time here at the end so that we're not rushed to get through them. Two applications. One for those who are Christians and one for those who are not. And I'm certain that there are people in both categories here this morning. There are those who are Christians, those who truly know the Lord, have received Him, and there are those who are not. Application number one is for those who are Christians. It is this. God is in sovereign control, and He takes terrible tragedies and brings good out of them. That's what God is doing in this situation regarding Paul. God actually was using this for good. Now, it wasn't good that Paul was unjustly accused, unjustly treated, unjustly left in prison. That wasn't good. But God was using it for good. Let me mention some of the good. It was good for Paul to be able to rest and not be beaten from pillar to post, which is what had happened to him for so many years. You read this in the book of Acts leading up to this story. Everywhere he went, it seems that he was beaten. Beaten sometimes within an inch of his life. So this was almost God's mercy to put him in prison where he wouldn't be beaten again. So God was being gracious to Paul in that sense. Even though Paul was incarcerated, verse 23 says, Paul was granted much liberty and was allowed to have friends visit him and provide for him. He was basically under arrest where he was kept, but not like in a dungeon where it was a bad situation. So even though this was a tragedy in one sense, God was bringing good out of it for Paul, for Paul personally. In addition, God was also using this for good to spread the gospel. Paul had the freedom to teach, to write, to interact. And during this two-year stay, Luke was with Paul, and Luke used this time to do his research for putting together the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, which we have in Scripture today. So God was bringing good out of this bad situation, terrible situation. And beloved, that's the way God works. Don't ever forget that. That's the way God works. We need to constantly remind ourselves that God is in sovereign control and He takes terrible tragedies in life and He brings good out of them. The greatest illustration of this truth, of course, is the death of the Lord Jesus. From a human standpoint, the death of Jesus was a tragedy. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever lose that perspective. From a human standpoint, it was the greatest case of injustice in human history. Jesus was unjustly put to death. He was murdered. And the first century believers felt that and understood that way more than we do because we always look at the cross through the grid of salvation and not through the grid of what it did to Jesus on a, uh, on a personal level or a human level as a citizen of that first century. Jesus was murdered. But God brought good out of it by placing our sin on Jesus as a sacrifice for our salvation. And God brought good out of it by raising him from the dead, which is the proof that Jesus' death was a sufficient payment for our sin. 
every year when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, every week when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it ought to be a reminder to us that God is in sovereign control and he takes terrible tragedies in life and he brings good out of them. Application number two. You are in great danger if you are postponing salvation. Felix was under conviction, but he pushed it away. He shoved it aside. He told Paul to go away. He told Paul he would consider these things later when the time was convenient. But as far as we know, he never did. He fell right back into his sinful ways and his love of sin. I warn you, the same thing can happen to you. You are in great danger if you are postponing salvation. Your heart can become like iron, which becomes harder when it cools after being heated. Judgment is coming someday, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is proof that God is going to someday raise you from the dead and judge you. And God is a judge who can never be bribed. And I would add this thought. There's a sense in which it doesn't matter if you believe this or not. What I mean is you might be sitting here this morning saying, oh, this, you know, I've heard this kind of thing before. This is just a scare tactic, trying to get people to convert. This, that's all this is. I don't believe this stuff. If you say you don't believe in the law of gravity, it doesn't really matter one bit because if you were to step off a cliff, you would plunge to your death. You could deny the law of gravity all the way down if you wanted to. But it's going to happen. In the same way, it doesn't matter if you believe that God is someday going to raise you from the dead and judge you, because it is going to happen whether you believe it or not. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof. Don't procrastinate. Edward Young wrote, Procrastination is the thief of time. That's true. It's also true that procrastination is the thief of souls. Don't postpone salvation. Repent today and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today. Let's bow together in closing prayer. And please, if you would, bow your head with me and close your eyes so that there are no distractions. If you are here this morning and you are not saved, if you, that is, if you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can call upon Him right now and receive Him as your personal Lord and Savior. If this is all new to you and you're not sure about what to say, let me help you. In the quietness of your own heart, this very moment, the quietness of your own heart, right there where you are seated, if the Spirit of God has stirred your heart, prompted you, convicted you, and you want to give your life to Christ, pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I admit my sinfulness, and I thank you for dying for me on the cross. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to repent of my sins, turn from them. I now place my faith in you, as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life 
and change me to be what you desire me to be. If that really expresses the desire of your heart, and if you have really, genuinely, sincerely called upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then based on the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that you are a child of God. Because the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you sincerely, genuinely call upon His name, in humility, in repentance, in genuine childlike faith, if you call upon His name, you will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord today. Don't procrastinate. Father, we have learned some powerful lessons this morning looking at this brief account, this historical account of Drusilla and Felix standing before Paul hearing him talk about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Talking about faith in Christ. The most crucial issue that any man or any woman will ever face in life or eternity. And so on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, this special day of the year that we commemorate the bursting forth of the Lord Jesus from the tomb. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to bring conviction to the hearts and lives of those present with us who have yet to yield their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the day they surrender to Him. And Father, for those of us who do know Him and love Him, may we be reminded in a powerful way from this story that you are always at work, even when we can't understand why or how or what, You are in control. You are bringing about good. And you are able, and you alone are able, to take the terrible tragedies of life and the terrible injustices of life and bring good out of them for our sake and for your name's sake. So teach us to trust you, especially during those hard times when we can't see. Take the truths to which we've been exposed this morning from your word and rivet them deeply in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds that they might be life-changing for us. We pray these things together in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.